0: This has to stop. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. We encourage you, use your First Amendment, that's fine. Death threats, physical threats, intimidation, it's too much. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it, you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of
1: violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. That was Georgia election official Gabriel Sterling last fall pleading with President Trump and his supporters to stop their bogus claims about election fraud, lest somebody get hurt. Sterling's comments proved prophetic coming barely a month before the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol and made him an instant hero to many around the country, including Democrats, sickened by Trump's efforts to peddle patently bogus claims that the election was stolen from him. But more recently, Sterling has spoken out in favor of a controversial Georgia election law that President Biden has likened to Jim Crow on steroids. Does Sterling have a point about the Georgia law? Are Biden and the Democrats engaged in rhetorical overkill? Or does Sterling have another agenda? We'll talk to him on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo
2: News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief
1: of Yahoo News.
3: And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice.
1: So we all remember Gabriel Sterling uh, from those passionate pleas last fall to President Trump, and all Republicans that were backing him in his ridiculous claims of voter fraud, stop the steal and all that. Um, Sterling was a uh, impassioned, eloquent voice for what a lot of people around the country felt was a really outrageous attack on our presidential election. But he obviously ruffled a lot of feathers with his recent op-ed in The Washington Post defending the Georgia law, uh, the headline was, Mr. President, your misinformation on Georgia's voting law is dangerous. That was pretty controversial and put him in a little different place than I think a lot of people had thought he was. But there sure is a lot to talk about here.
3: And look, we don't hide the fact that I'm a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So obviously, I I come at this with a certain perspective. And I understand that a lot of people are concerned about kind of uh, overstating what the Georgia law does, whether or not it really is Jim Crow on steroids. My perspective is, at a minimum, it's Jim Crow's beak under the tent. And, and, you know, given the long history of voter suppression of African-American voters that has occurred throughout the country, not just in the South. African American voters and civil rights leaders had ample justification to be really concerned about a 98-page bill, you know, that completely redid vast swaths of Georgia law without consultation at all with the civil rights community. But listen to the podcast, listen to what Gabe Sterling has to say. You'll you'll hear his defense of the law.
2: Yeah. And Gabe Sterling doesn't also hide the fact that he's a partisan. Um, You know, uh, as you pointed out, he was lauded by Democrats and progressives in the aftermath of the election because of the way he stood up to Donald Trump. But look, these are um, really emotional issues and for good reason uh, because of the history of disenfranchisement and suppression. And I think conversations like the one we're about to have are really important because, you know, the context really, really counts and understanding not just uh, the fine print of the legislation, but the historical context in which it's being uh, written is uh, uh, it's is just an important part of that uh, larger conversation. A- to and the to contemporary
1: context, because we have right yes, now, the- and we'll bring this up in, in, when we talk to Sterling, what's going on in Arizona, which seems such a travesty right now, where the Republican legislature has uh, basically assigned some sketchy firm out of Florida that bought into all the Stop the Steal stuff and Dominion and all the crazy conspiracy theories to to do an audit of the votes in Maricopa County. Uh, you know, it just seems like the whole stop the steal movement that President Trump created is still very much with us and uh, has to be dealt with one way or the other. But
3: but before we get to that, the Supreme Court today granted cert. In other words, they agreed to he- hear a case uh, probably in this fall uh, called New York Rifle and Pistol Association v. Versus Corlett, which is the first case in more than a decade dealing with Second Amendment issues in a major way that the Supreme Court is going to hear. It has got a lot of people you know, really on high alert for what's about to happen. The case basically involves whether or not uh, it's a New York case, which bars essentially a concealed carry of a weapon outside of the home, unless you apply for a special permit and show proper cause
1: for a concealed carry. So who's challenging the law and on what grounds?
3: So it's essentially two people in New York state who want to be able to carry their gun concealed outside of their home in New York state. They're backed by a gun rights organization, not the National Rifle Association, a different organization. And they're going to be in front of the Supreme Court. A lot of people believe that this is the case where the Supreme Court is going to undo the efforts of a lot of states to regulate concealed carry of pistols outside the home.
2: I mean I think what they basically contend is this reg this regulation this law essentially makes it impossible to carry a gun uh, outside of the home. But I have to say the Supreme Court has impeccable timing in uh, granting cert in this case. I mean right after this spate of horrific mass shootings, um it takes up a case that most people I think believe is going to be used to expand uh, gun rights. And of course, uh Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, the, the court's most recently appointed justices, have taken a pretty uh you know capacious view of uh, Second Amendment rights. But you know, a lot of federal appeals courts across the country have upheld these laws. And one I noticed that was interesting, and be interesting to you, Isakoff, since we covered him um, and he wrote the opinion, was in the Ninth Circuit um upheld Hawaii's uh, law seven to four. And, uh, so who did I cover so, on, the,
1: on the ninth The church. judge
2: who wrote the opinion, yeah. uh, is Jay Bybee. Do you remember him oh, from, yeah. uh, from, uh, the, uh, Bush, oh, yeah. oh, uh, Bush, J. Bybee. Bush the torture
1: memo. He was, he's the torture memo guy.
2: Exactly. Exactly. He actually
1: put his name to what John you had but John. Written. Exactly. But, yeah. but, but
2: here's what he wrote. Our review of more than 700 years of English and American legal history reveals a strong theme. Government has the power to regulate arms in the public square. So, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion uh, that the Supreme Court will overturn uh, this New York state law. Given that history, given the precedent, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure what Brett Kavanaugh would do and, and Gorsuch would do in a case like this where they've you know talked about stare decisis. And I guess this isn't really stare decisis, yeah. but there there's not a lot of conflict among the circuits. Um, there's been mostly these laws have have been upheld. So we'll see what happens. All
1: right. All this is for a later podcast on guns. But today we're talking voting. So let's get to it. We now have with us Gabriel Sterling, the Chief Operations Officer for the Georgia Secretary of State. Gabriel Sterling, welcome to Skullduggery. Happy to be here. It's weird. The thing it says my name then Skullduggery. I'm like. Is this a positive
0: or a negative? Thing?
2: <laughs> <laughs> we consider skullduggery a positive. Okay, oh, yes, you know, yes. It's a we're good pro, word for us. We're
1: pro skullduggery here. All right. Well, you um, obviously made a lot of waves with your recent op-ed in the Washington Post about the Georgia election law and uh, your defense of the Georgia election law. And we want to get into that. We're going to dig into that. But before we do, I do want to ask you just to start out about the Fulton County investigation into the efforts by President Trump and his supporters to get you to change the vote totals in Georgia. Uh, There was a report over the weekend by CNN that um, the uh, district attorney, uh, Fannie Willis, is frustrated with what she feels is the lack of cooperation she's getting from the Georgia Secretary of State's office. So tell us, have you heard? from the district attorney's office uh are you uh, cooperating are you have you been asked to testify tell us where things stand well the main
0: thing is that reports basically a load of crap um that's it's a, a it's, she's a democrat elected democrat we've been cooperating with the office our attorneys are dealing with them they literally put in a request on Tuesday for some documents we got back to them and said okay we can have them to you by this day and in the meantime CNN calls us and we're like what the hell are you talking about we were literally talking with them. Our attorneys deal with them. And we told them we had to lo- we us some outside counsel to make sure our offices are look- looked after during this whole period of time. But we've been talking back and forth. They sent us a letter. That hasn't been a lot so far because we really haven't asked us for very much. The, um, they sent us a letter, oh, hell, I don't know, not long after the whole, after Fawny came out and said, yes, we're going to look into it, saying, you know, keep all your records. We're a government agency. we got to keep all our records anyway. Mm-hmm. So... I think it's politicians playing politics and we are obviously going to cooperate in all investigations. We've got our own with our state election board happening. So Yeah, what
1: what is what is your investigation? You have a separate secretary of state as an investigation. What are you investigating? The state
0: election board is looking into it as well because obviously they enforce election laws. And it's it's a weird thing because it's this there's five members of the state election board, and that's one of the big things I don't like about the law. It removes the Secretary of State, who's been the chairman of the State Election Board forever. Off of that, there's five members, and they essentially are the first go-to for election law violations. Like if you if there's politicking near a line, or if you know there's an issue around, you know somebody giving away one of my favorite was somebody offered if you show prove you voted, we'll not you a raffle for a turkey, or you know all that kind of stuff starts to get investigated. Anything in 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 Title 21, which is our election code, starts the State Election Board, but they have no prosecutorial authority. All they can do is say. We'll give you a letter of reprimand, you know, here we'll dismiss the case or we'll refer it to a local district attorney or to the Attorney General's office. That's the process. And when we came into office, there was a backlog of cases in there um, going back to like 2014, 2016. We we kind of worked our way through most of those and we are now, and we got through the 18 cases and we did some 20 cases last last, um, uh, election board meeting. We have another one coming up soon um, and we'll get, we'll try to burn through more of those as well. But it's a bureaucratic first step of most election cases starts there.
2: I just want to know, I mean, presumably in you know, the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's investigation, Brad Rassenberger is going to have to be a fact witness, right? Is, is that your expectation that he will be a witness in this investigation?
0: And what about yourself? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I've watched a lot of Law and Order over the years. So my assumption is he would probably have to be some kind of fact witness. But I mean, the recording sort speaks space for itself. You know, I was really pissed when I wasn't on that phone call. When I found I found out about the call ninety seconds before it happened, and I was really pissed when I wasn't on the phone call. After listening to the phone call, I was very happy I was not on that phone call because <laughs> so, I would have lost my mind. I mean, because I was when I listened to it on the tape, I uh, went on the computer after I got released to Washington Post. I was sitting there yelling at my computer, going, "That's not true." Well, push back, and but I'm think, being all ballsy and stuff, thinking, "I think." The Mr. Germany and the Secretary Ravisberger did a very fine job of standing up for the rule of law and the facts and being very calm in a situation that I probably would not have been able to do. I don't know the details of how all, all it's going to work as far as that goes. I, it's going to be a difficult kind of thing to, because you have to get into the people's mindset of what they were trying to do. And again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just going to watch this process probably from the sideline.
1: Two quick questions. First, when Trump says on the phone call, all he wants you to do, you being the Secretary of State's office, is fine 11,780 votes, one more than we need. Um, how did you interpret that when you heard that? Was the president asking you to commit
0: voter fraud? He was saying you need to go through and recalculate, recalibrate, look at it just one more time to see if it's out there. I mean, there's a certain irony. The processes we put in place, we had a, for the first time ever, this is the first time people, to give us some context, we hadn't had ballots in the state in 20 years. So this is the first time we had ballots in 20 years. So we had in place, we were going to do an audit and we had chosen to do a risk limiting audit before the election, like months beforehand. So everybody had to get their ballot manifest together. I mean, these all these boring bureaucratic things. This is how you know elections work is when you do all the boring bureaucratic things, right? So We made the decision to to treat the presidential campaign as the one we were going to do, but the margin was so close. Essentially, you get to where you have to do a complete hand retally. And in doing that hand retally, we found three counties that made mistakes in in handling their ballots. And it got the president another like 2,400 votes. I think he picked up through that process. I could be off my number now. It's been a few months and I apologize. But through that process, through our normal bureaucratic stuff, they found some votes. And maybe he was thinking, if we just recount... 12 more times they can find the votes, but that's not how the system works. So again, I don't want to necessarily get into the president's mindset. And I can see how people who are vociferous defenders of him are saying, you just need to, we know there's real fraud. You got to find that fraud. And the people who hate his guts going, he was asking you to commit election fraud and steal the election. And it's probably a mix of both of reality at the end of the day, which goes back to the rationale I had for writing that op-ed is that we keep on weaponizing election administration on both sides and it ratchets up. The claims have to get bigger and bigger and you have to get a bit more emotional and more emotional. And it's impossible to get through the fog of war to find the facts and find the truth and just follow what I've said before. we got to make elections boring again because we have ballots so we can avoid bullets. And I know people say, well, the president's wars led to an insurrection and riot. I agree. He laid foundation for that. And his speech that day definitely did. But when you start saying over and over again, like Stacey Abrams in 2018, and even today, if you poll um, Democrats, over half, a right at half, still believe Russians hacked voting machines and for votes to give the elections out Trump. No evidence of that. None. It's never been, it's been discussed. There's no, there's no evidence of it. We have more and more people, if every time a person loses, they say it was stolen, eventually everybody loses faith in the election. And that's the problem. And that's what I was trying to talk about here. And yes, it's a little bit of a hyperbole to say someone's going to hurt. Yeah. But part of the problem we have now is by saying this is Jim Crow 2.0, which is ridiculous. Jim Crow was a systematic system of, of you know, highly oppressive laws that were literally ripping people off of the rolls of setting up impossible hurdles for people to meet. And, it was obviously directed at African-Americans because they had the grandfather clauses in there to let older, poor, white folks get onto the things. To compare those two things to, you can't have water bottles out because we're trying to have a system by which a poll manager can enforce the rules that have existed forever that says, one, you can't pay campaign within one hundred fifty feet, and two, you can't give anything of value during camp, a campaign at a polling station and during voting. I mean, these are simple things that people are spinning up into, stuff that's just lies. And- has just become more and more frustrating. And you can talk to election administrators, county folks, state-level folks across the nation, and they're losing people because of this. And In our state, we had people who were followed around, threatened, We've we've had a bunch of people resign just because it's tiring. I mean, in this particular election cycle, I'm not gonna say broke some people, but it got damn close to breaking some people because it was just so hard. And it's not getting easier by this kind of rhetoric continuing to ratchet up, even though what I've said before is the incentives are exactly inverse of what reality ought to be. Donald Trump can go out there and say this election was fraud and stolen, and he raises tons of money and stirs up his, his base into, you know, doing more action. People can say there's voter suppression. They raise more money and stir up their base and get more votes to turn out. The person saying they're telling the truth, people like Secretary Raffensperger and myself, they both say, well, pox on your house because you're. You're not meeting the narrative. We need to get our people to start up and raise money. Okay. You're going to,
1: you're going to get some pushback here from our uh, co-host, Victoria Busetti, who's with, we should tell you the Brennan center uh, for law and justice that has very strong views about the Georgia election law. So Victoria, go for it.
3: Well, I, and, and I agree with you about toning down the rhetoric. So let's, you know, let's, uh, you know, go to the, the facts of the law. And, and kind of my first question is, given, as you say, the, the history of, G- of Jim Crow and the history in, in Georgia of, ex- of concerns about how African-American voters are treated, do you think that black voters and civil rights leaders were justified in their skepticism or concerns about what the Georgia legislature might have been doing?
0: Everybody can be justified in their concerns, given the history on these situations. However, I will also lay out some other history for you. The only time in the history of the state of Georgia a map passed the Voting Rights Act and the Constitutional Muster was under Republicans in 2011. Every other election map ever drawn in our state, drawn by Democrats, was started by the Justice Department or by justice for violating the Constitution and violating the civil rights of African-Americans every single time in the 70s. But we're not talking about maps. We're not talking about maps here. You said, I'm going to lay out the history for you. The reality of modern history is this. Brian Kemp added automatic voter registration, which has added tens and hundreds of thousands of African-Americans to the rolls. We put online voter registration in. The problem you have is you have Stacey Abrams, who poll tested voter suppression. And we got that from our discovery from our lawsuits and said, we're going to use this as a political tool in an effort to win power. And they literally said that we have a fall memo of 2014 explaining that. So as the reason for many of those people to be concerned, yes, because they gain a political advantage from it. And the voters believe their leaders who are telling you, you have to be concerned about this.
3: So there's no substance to those concerns as far as you're concerned. It's it's just a kind of a myth of, of suppression, a myth of of, In modern of time, any sort of impact on
0: absolutely. In modern. Absolutely. Which
3: you define as. Post-civil rights
0: era, right? I mean, really getting into the 90s and the 2000s, I think there were still problems. Like I said, there was voter suppression efforts through redistricting the Democrats tried to do for years and years and years. So, but they never get any pushback on it because they're Democrats. And that's, that's that's a political reality we have to deal with. In our state, so, again,
3: so, so essentially, your argument is, is that African-American voters in Georgia have been kind of completely bamboozled by civil rights leaders about what what their voting rights are and about efforts to possibly, you know, kind of claw back or make it more difficult for them to vote over the course of the last 50 years. They're just rubes who've been bamboozled.
0: No, I'm not saying that rubes have been bamboozled. I'm saying that they're given situations they can look at what looks terrible that are not state sanctioned things remember, the Secretary of State sort of oversees elections in the state. Counties run elections. The places you see long lines, you know where those are? Fulton County, DeKalb County, and Clayton County, places that are run by, generally speaking, African-American Democrats. They make decisions that cause very big problems in their their own backyards. The only reason we didn't have lines this November is because we came down hard on a lot of these counties after the June election. I mean, I'm dealing with the actual realities of the situations, and Here's the other things that really are frustrating. Mm-hmm. We got sued by the Democrats to get rid of signature match because it was too subjective. So in the law, we got rid of signature match. And now they're saying, well, you can't go to ID because that's too difficult. Have some way to do this. But And by our math, we will actually have lower rejection rates using this. It's easier to manage because to train a $10 or $15 an hour worker to look at the signatures is a lot more difficult than saying, is this number right or is this number wrong? It's binary. It's very easy to do. And we have so many ways people can get their ID in. And it's free in the state and has been for years, but we actually now have an extra line item in our budgets to make sure it's paid for at the county level. Um, Yet 200,000 Georgians don't have
3: voter ID, correct? Or don't have a a, a state-issued identification that would meet the requirements,
0: correct? It's less than 3%, and it was less than 2% of people who actually voted who don't have an official driver's license or state-given ID, but they can use all the HAVA stuff. They can take what happened, what we learned, actually, a really good thing that de- Democrats did when they were curing absentee ballots, they would take the cure form and they would place whatever kind of ID they had, take a picture of it. In this particular case, one of the other ways you can request a ballot, and there's two different things that happen here when you're looking at the, the, replacing the signature match. You have the voter ID, which covers 97% of the people, out of the gate. We know that really 98 in terms of real life because there's people on the rolls who aren't really there anymore. Then you've got the HAVA ID. So let's just take the simplest example. Am I requesting an ID? I put the theme up ballot or the yeah, request down and get my utility bill of my address and put it on there, take a picture and send it in. That qualifies to get you your absentee ballot. Then when you vote your absentee ballot, you can use the last four of your social and your birth date as a, as a thing if you don't have your ID. And that covers 99.92% of them. So is it 100% everybody all the time? No. You're always going to have a little, few little things, very easy to fix those things. And by our math, it may affect about 2000 people. So, but yeah, you're right. In a, in a st- you, you'll with-
3: admit that elderly voters might have a little bit of difficulty with this with this certain with these sort of requirements, wouldn't you?
0: I really won't. No, I it's, mean, it's it's really it's, it's people, okay. I, my grandparents go, go on Facebook all the time now. I do, I do not believe that. I'm sorry. I think that people are smarter than that. And they will figure out how uh-huh. to make. we have no problem. People voting in the state. <laughs> all right. Let's get I,
2: I want to ask, Gabe, before you seem to be drawing um, an equivalency between uh, what. Republicans and supporters of Donald Trump and Donald Trump himself were doing in the aftermath of the election, and what progressives and Democrats um, have been doing more more recently. But do you see? I mean, what happened after the election, where you know there were conspiracy theories about you know the Dominion voter machines uh, flipping votes and uh, ballots being thrown out, and the president of the United States uh, pressuring election officials to find more votes? Do you see? A distinction between that kind of conduct uh, on the one hand and the kind of, you know, maybe more political conduct uh, that you you might might perceive on the the other side is
0: one more pernicious than the other. Well, Well, I think they're both equally pernicious. Now, the levels they're at as high. No, the stakes aren't quite as high. But the thing is, I live in Georgia. We've had conspiracy theories from the left for the last few years that the DREs stole the election from Stacey Abrams. I mean, they've got lawsuits on that. In fact, some of the same things filed by Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood use the same kind of briefing techniques that was used in the fair fight and the – Coalition for Good Government lawsuits that are still in existence in front of Judge Totenberg. I mean, they use some of the exact same experts and some of this, and they referenced some of their own testimony they got through some of those. So yes, in this state, and that's why I'm a little more familiar with it than most, we're a very close state in terms of red to blue, purple, whatever you want to call it. And that was the other frustrating thing, being in this state, people out in the world were all surprised that Biden won the state. If you look Republicans are losing between a point and a point and a half for the last few years. This has been pretty steady and it's gone along those ways. And it's not surprising in the areas where they voted, it was, there was no political science surprises in how the vote turned out here. As an example, in the state house district I lived in was represented by a Republican named Deborah Silcox. She lost the seat by like 377 votes. Uh, The president lost the seat by 2,500 votes. Guess what? He lost white Republican women with college degrees. Shocker of all shocks. But my main point is, Both sides undermine their voters' belief in the outcome of elections. Part of the reason in 2020 and 2018 we had these lawsuits was to lay this foundation because it was close, And with the other way, the people who were yelling at me in in November and December and January would have been the same people who were praising me for for standing up to Donald Trump because people are driven by what they want to see the outcomes of these things. Our job is to just give you the outcome and and do the audits and make you believe this is the outcome.
2: I want to ask just a really quick follow up to that, yeah. um, because it, it seems like there has been this really sharp divide uh, between um, state election officials, uh, and talking about around the country and in many you know Republican-controlled states, who were uh, professionals, uh, nonpartisan, like you know you and 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 Brad Raassenberger, and then other state office holders and uh, members of the legislature who just kind of got on the. You know, the Trump train, and we're willing to uh, spout the same conspiracy theories and and nonsense um, that we saw in the aftermath of the election. So here's my question are you are you worried that the state election apparatus um, might be infected by some of the same disease that we're seeing? Uh, around the country among uh, other elected office holders and, and in state legislatures? I mean, how long is it going to be before we see, you know, whether it's on the left or the right, but the same kinds of crazy outlandish ideas and conspiracy theories actually infecting, you know, uh, state election boards? Um, and how do you prevent that from
0: happening? The prevention part is very difficult because essentially you said by Secretary Rapsburg and I were nonpartisan. No, we're partisan as heck. I'm not going to lie about it. I've been a Republican, I am a Republican. I'm a Republican. But we have a job to do. We have a sworn law right. to hold. Professional, I guess, is the better word. Yeah, than, I mean, partisan. And you kind of hope that you put systems in place to encourage professionalism. What pushed a lot of the legislators, and if you get a legislator from any of these states, from the Pennsylvanias, the Michigans, the Arizonas, the Georgias, where, you know, we were sort of the, the focal point of a lot of this, and you get them by themselves, you talk to them. Out of 100, if you line 100 up, 95 of them know nothing happened. 95 of them know, guess what? I'm not going to quote exactly because I don't want to cuss on your thing. <laughs> the guys that That's fine. Maybe I have fine. to come to the conclusion that upsets one, two, a few too many people <laughs> talking about the president. And but they can't tell their their supporters are so vociferous and angry. And I, I don't want I want to let your listeners and viewers on the podcast understand, because I think there's a disconnect. That they that they don't understand the level of anger and fear attached to this. That the president stood and I'm not arguing that he didn't, doesn't mean it's not real. They believe it in their gut and their heart of hearts. And it's an easy thing to
1: manipulate and take advantage of. But all right, hold on a second. But you're the professional here and your I wasn't going to prof- get you an answer Michael, but okay. <laughs> well, your professional judgment is that in Georgia in November you had a fair election with the right results, right? There was no fraud nope. of, well, of any significant kind, right? Uh, this is where I hate the word fraud. The word fraud is this giant amorphous thing
0: that can be anything to anybody. I like to be a little more precise, Coming on professional side. There is illegal voting. There is always illegal voting. Was there organized illegal voting? We have found none. Was there individual one off? Here's my
1: question If you had a free and fair election in Georgia last time, why did the state legislature feel the need to completely rewrite the rules for next time? Why did you have to go through this exercise at all if you were doing fine?
0: Because I just got through telling you that there was a few million Georgians who didn't feel that way. Yeah, Um, but you know they're wrong. Hold on. You're the professional.
1: You know they're wrong.
0: Yeah. Yes, they're wrong. But you can't just go to somebody and say what you feel and what you know is absolutely wrong. You can't ever win an argument that way. There's no way to win somebody over. Didn't you just do that for black voters? No, I didn't, actually, because another part of the law, if you let me get to it, was we worked on trying to pass a thing to get lines to come down because before we didn't have the power to do that. And ironically, in 2020, when we tried to pass the same law that said if there was a line of over one hour at any time in any voting location, that either split the polling location or add machinery. We got that passed in 2021. We tried to pass it in 2020 so we could learn and get ahead of it. But what happened was Democrats 100% voted against it because it was our idea. So, don't tell me that this partisanship on voting stuff it only goes one way. So, what we did in this law was address let's, take, let's, let's pretend the president won Georgia for a second. We launched a, a voting system for the first time in 20 years, and we had COVID. There was going to be an election law rewrite no matter what. Would it have been this law rewrite? No. Would they have stripped the, the secretary of his p- position as state election board chairman? No. Would they have focused as much on absentee ballots? No. But they would have probably expanded early voting the way they did. They would have put some more rules around drop boxes, but allow them at all because remember the drop boxes we have did not exist in Georgia law. So if they did nothing, they all would have gone away. There would have been no drop boxes at all in Georgia. So they passed law to allow for them, which for me was, not the law I would have written. I would have kept them outside. I would have allowed them to be 24 hours and keep them under surveillance and have a centralized uh, system where people could go and watch them all the time. We were working on that, but there was not enough buy-in because we have a legislature that has a job. So they were trying to do stuff. And one of the bad things they did tactically, they did two things bad tactically. When they came in, it was in January, right after you know we had just lost the Senate races and, and the president was still pounding the desk. He might've still been on Twitter. I don't know. The leadership of both the state house and the state Senate said to all the members, introduce whatever you need to get your people calmed down, which is why I went on CNN and said, look, all the stuff you're seeing introduced now is never going to pass. This thing of eliminating excuse-based absentee, getting rid of Sunday voting, all, was never going to pass. And I said, cooler heads were going to prevail. And they did for the most part. This is not – I'm sitting in a state right now that's going to have literally 240 hours of available in-person voting in most of the urban areas. I mean, when I'm being criticized by the people from New Jersey who don't even have ballots yet, people who live in New York have nine days of early voting and only get excuse got rid of excuse space this year. We got rid of it fifteen years ago. I'm not going to be lectured by people of ballot access when we have the broadest ballot access and easiest registration in the United States. All right,
1: let's go to one that's obviously gotten a lot of attention, and that's the provision in the new law that bars uh, the provision of food and drink, bottled water to somebody waiting in line to vote. Now, you wrote a similar law exists in the president's home state of Delaware. Mm -hmm. Now, the Washington Post fact checker took you to task for that, gave you two Pinocchios, saying the Delaware law does not. Not uh, make any reference to providing water to people. It was it's it's a, it's generic language about bribery that you can't bribe somebody to vote. Yeah. So why why do you why you need that? Why did you need barring water during the election,
0: especially during early voting, you had people standing outside the law. Our law has put two provisions in law, and actually I said this earlier in the podcast, but I'll say it again. You can't campaign or do electioneering within 150 feet of the, of the polling location, and you mm-hmm. can't give away anything of value. Those are two laws that exist. We try to be sort of common sense about it during the last couple of election cycles, and third-party groups have started to abuse it. They start coming up in line and talking to people, and it doesn't mean to say, hey, go vote for this person. It means, hey, go get three more people to vote. You can't do that. That's against the law, and it has been for decades in nearly every state in the nation. So if you're a poll manager, why? Why'd you need to put in bottled water? You okay, can't I'm not somebody- to it, Michael. Let me get to it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> if you're a poll manager and you're trying to run your election day, and you see people coming and talking to people, there's no good way for you to know what's happening unless you walk out and stand next to them to do that. You don't have the manpower ability to do that. So what's happening is we were having people call the sheriff's office, which under the state constitution they enforce, you know, keeping the election laws followed and polls safe. So then we're creating extra conf- confrontations and extra problems. So it's okay because you. Third-party groups are abusing this at this point. And we knew they were. We had, we've had reports and reports of it. And it's not just from the left. It's also from the right. You know, somebody wearing a MAGA hat doing the same thing or an NRA hat or a BLM shirt or anything like that. We basically said, we're going to put a bright line in. You can't get within this space. Just you gotta, you got to knock it off. You can, you can provide water. You can give it to the poll managers. So they can distribute to people in line. You can set up a booth 25 feet away. People can come get it. But we can't have people walking up to people in line at the polls. Now, the good part was in November and January on election day, there were no lines at all. I mean, the, the average wait time was three minutes, but we had to put that bright line in to make it easier for poll managers to enforce, to basically say, stop talking to these guys. You know, you can't get near these people. That is why they put those specifics in so nobody can say, well, it's just water. No, it's not just water. It's your way of you trying to game the system and get around to talk to somebody for that last little bit. That's why they had to put that in there. I, was, I, don't think I would have written it quite that way. Again, I would have been maybe slicker, but because <laughs> <laughs> you knew that was going to be a target once you did that. So there, there is a provision
2: of the law that you um, object to, and I think you alluded to it earlier in this conversation, and that is uh, that in this case, your boss, the secretary of state, has been removed as the chief elections officer, and that power goes to the state elections board that is appointed in this particular case by – the Republican majority. Well, why do you object to it? And it sounds to me like a partisan uh, power grab.
0: Well, the reality is, before this law passed, the board was four Republicans and one Democrat. After this law is passed, it's four Republicans and one Democrat. So the partisan makeup hasn't changed. It was really a political pound of flesh to hit my boss, Brad Raffensperger. It was silly. I think it's a bad idea. And the biggest reason I have for it goes back to election administration and accountability. Uh, Secretary Raffensberger and the Old, under the old law, was the only statewide elected officer who was accountable to the voters for the decisions of the elections board, essentially. Everybody else there is an appointee of another body. The way it's structured now is, or the way it was under the old one, secretary of state was the chairman of the state elections board, you know, sets the agendas, runs the meetings, does those, those kind of things. Then you have an appointee from the state house, which could be Republican or Democrats. Republican right now has historically been Democrat until 2005 than an appointee from the state Senate. And then you have one appointee of the Republican Party and one appointee of the Democrat Party. Now, the other appointees remain the same, the other four. The only thing that changed in this thing in terms of the makeup of the body was that they took out the Secretary of State and had the entire body of the legislature pick this nonpartisan unicorn that they have defined that understands and knows elections, but hasn't worked in elections, hasn't given to a candidate, hasn't done anything in like some number of years. I am going to be interested to see the human being they can find who fits that bill. But the secondary, the follow-up part of that, which most people then go to, goes well. If this was in place, you, you add it to the part where they can replace local elections officials. They could have done what Donald Trump wanted to do. They can't because there's two things that also changed in this law. It moved the certification process back from the third Friday after the election to the second Friday, which is really like 11 days, I think, something like that. That's so, a yeah, 10 or 11 days. The first step to remove a local elections officer by the state election board is the appointment of a investigatory committee that does a performance review of the last two previous general election cycles of that county. The minimum amount of time that performance review takes is 30 days. So as you can see, 10 days is much shorter than 30 days. So there's no way that they can come in and say, hey, we're going to remove these elections officials and change results. I mean, the ballots are the ballots are the ballots. And that's going to be there after the fact. So that is also a spin. And it's a fear. And I, I, I understand that the level of power people want to put into elections sometimes and and the things that are at stake. And they basically say the future, the entire future is at stake in every single election, which, yes, we all get that. But again, the hyperbole makes people go a little crazy with their interpretations sometimes. But this
2: board would not be able to disqualify ballots, for example. No, it cannot.
1: You, You say ballots are the ballots are the ballots, but look what's going on in Arizona right now. Where the uh, the legislature has authorized some third party group, some firm in Florida that has bought into all the crazy conspiracy stuff about the election, to audit the votes in Maricopa County under sort of bizarre circumstances where the press isn't allowed in to watch. You know, you've got partisan lawmakers authorizing an apparently partisan firm to do an audit of the election results. That's not the kind. Kind of thing that's going to instill confidence uh, in voter oh, intent. On that particular front, I'm right there with you. That's, that's just dumb. <laughs> I've got no other better way to say it. Yeah, um, but but when, when, but when people see the Georgia law injecting and allowing partisan legislators to overturn or take away the responsibilities of the Secretary of State, they see Arizona. They see that as a, a playbook for what the Arizona legislature is doing. Okay,
0: but trying to say that as a partisan power grab, essentially, we run as partisans in this country. And there are Democrats who are in charge in other places that don't like the list maintenance. They had to get sued in California and I think Kentucky to just do regular list maintenance, which to me is crazy that you'd have to do that because you need good, clean lists to run elections. And in this state, we're changing this out. Again, this was more about the fact that the speaker really doesn't like my boss and he hasn't since he was in the state house. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a political pound of flesh that, as I understand it, when they were in the. Tell well, us who the speaker is. Uh, David Ralston. Okay. Um, and he's been speaker for a long time. And I, he, on most issues we agree on, this one we don't. He was not going to move off that. He says, Raffensperger's off this thing. He wanted to punish him somehow. So, and that was, that was why that happened. So I, people don't need to understand the Byzantine internal politics of, of a state like Georgia, but you've all been around and seen Byzantine politics and seen petty little hits sometimes that happened and then have you know real world consequences. So I get, why would they do that kind of thing and get the questioning of it? but not everything is an evil conspiratorial scheme. At one point, when I was trying to beat back conspiracy theories around State Farm, which is where Fulton County was doing their absentee ballot counting, uh, I was talking to a local reporter and we we're watching the videotape, i like, look, this is not the Ocean's 11 career, guys. This is just people trying to do their work. And most of the time, we all sit back, and we think that these, there's these puppeteers and things that are happening out there when it's really people trying to do the best they can. And a lot of these Republican legislators just wanted to try to find some way they could reinstill confidence in their voters because, as we saw in the Senate runoffs, we had a quarter million Republicans not show up. Democrats all showed up because here's the other idiocy of the claims from the Trump side, psychologically, on voters. If you go to somebody and say, Hey, your vote's being suppressed and trying to take it away from you, as an American, as a human being, your gut reaction is to do what? Oh, the heck they are. I'm gonna go do it even harder. So you're encouraged to go out and do that. In Trump's claims. Your vote was stolen. It doesn't count. What does that do to you? Well, what the hell? What's my point of doing anything then? So you stay home. It was the most backwards ass, ridiculous set of tactics you could possibly imagine for the January election. And then even then, going back to the power politics of this, my understanding is on the January 4th rally night in North Georgia, I think it was near Dalton, Georgia, uh, the carpet capital of the world. Trump was backstage with uh, Senator Leffler, and basically said, if you don't go out there and say you're going to vote to overturn the election, I'm not going to endorse you out there tonight. So what is she supposed to do? She has to go out there and say she's going to overturn the election. And what did she do the next, the, the day after that, two days after that, after the insurrection? She said, I can't do it. At that point, she had nothing left to lose, though. I mean, they also, Senator Perdue and Leffler, basically being pushed by Trump, said, you got to ask for Secretary Raffensperger's resignation. This was like 10 days after the election or something. And I... I kind of had a gut feeling that happened. I've been saying that now for three months. No one's ever pushed back on me about it. So my assumption is it must be true at this point because no one's ever said it didn't happen that way. So
1: so you totally blame Trump for the loss of uh, the two Senate seats. Absolutely. 100 percent. Four square on his shoulders, on his back. It should be on his epitaph
0: and on a gravestone at the end. Yes, it's Trump, Donald J. Trump's fault that the Republicans lost control of the United States Senate.
1: Well, um, in your defense of the law, you clearly haven't won over any of the major corporations that are objecting to what the Georgia legislature has done and Major League Baseball, which has taken uh, the all star game out of the state. How do you explain the fact that the message you're trying to deliver here? has not broken through to traditionally uh, you know, uh, conservative organizations, big corporations that um, often give to Republicans. They're all essentially boycotting your state.
0: Well, it's part of the reason I had to write that op-ed to call out President Biden. You, you said Washington Post fact-checked me and gave me two Pinocchios. They gave him four for describing the law. I mean, so if you're being lied to about the law, your employees are being lied to about it, And then you get pressure internally from it, and it's easier to answer, to go to the woke culture and say, yes, we'll we'll do this. But the reality of it is now a lot of the chambers of commerce and other corporations have been calling our office going, what does this bill really say? And now you've seen it kind of slow down a lot. We haven't seen a lot of discussion around this lately. So it's really kind of calmed down because people are realizing, you know, maybe this isn't quite as over the top as we've been told or led to believe. And I'll give you one of my frustrations. I'm born in Georgia. I was raised in Georgia. I don't have a really heavy Southern accent because I was raised in Atlanta, but it's easy to portray us as, as racist because people who are outside of this thing want to play on that. And I'm frankly sick of it. And I'm tired of it because it's not the reality of the state that I grew up in and love and people playing on that because our governor does have a pretty thick Southern accent and it's, Terrible. And I hate it. That's part of the reason I want to push back on a lot of these things. Where you hate his accent? No, I love his accent. I wish I could <laughs> talk that way. I, wish. Yeah. The I really want Michael is Sam Nunn's. I want Sam's oh, yeah. accent so bad, but I can't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, Gabe, you, um,
2: tens of millions of Americans, uh, remember you, uh, you pugnacious, um, and at times emotional press conferences in the aftermath of the, of the election. You're a familiar face now on cable television, Familiar voice on podcasts. I assume Um, you describe yourself as you know an intense partisan. Are you
0: gonna? Are you planning to run for uh, for other elective office? Are you gonna? Do you have political ambitions? My first plan right now is to get through this job. I'm getting married at some point this year. I got engaged on Labor Day (laughs) with all this other crap (laughs) happening in COVID. We have not been able to plan the wedding, so I am not even going to begin to get out ahead of that idea. Besides, as you all well know, you have to have your spouse on board with anything like that, and she's like. We're not talking about any of that until we get married. <laughs> well, ma- well, marriages are political as well. So <laughs> a different form of politics. Yeah. Frankly, Daniel, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm never going to say never. I'm never going to say yes, hell yes. I'm doing well, it. Well, you've
1: for run office. for office before, right? Oh, yeah. You, you well, well, for I was elected legislator.
0: I mean, yeah, okay. it, it, but part of this thing goes back to my election I had before goes back to one of my fundamental things that if I was king for a day I would make happen. I think if you ever run for higher office, which is state level, state legislature, Congress, any of the other things, you have to have been elected to a city council, county commission, or school board because there you're actually accountable for stuff. Your vote actually means something and you have to see your friends in the grocery store or your voters in the grocery store and be held accountable. Well, all these people who jump straight to Congress are so unaccountable and so all about the camera. It just drives me bat crap crazy because the other thing you have to do at a city council, county commission, school board is you actually have to get things done which means you actually have to work with people and actually stay to your mm-hmm. word when you do mm-hmm. things and you know tell the truth, little things like that. And maybe that'll help people be actually got elected to those local places first.
3: So I want to go back to something you said, which was you wanted you wanted to bring the boring back mm-hmm. to election administration, which I, I think many people fervently hope for. But probably the cold, hard realities are we're in a place of hyper partisanship and hyper scrutiny of elections probably for the medium term, at least in in light of that inevitability. Is there anything about what Georgia did in and in, in passing this law that you would do differently if you could do it over again?
0: Uh, yeah, I would have the drop boxes very differently. Um, I would have put them outside and had them under a 24 hour video surveillance and probably live stream. So anybody can go look at any time for a lot more transparency I would have added more random audits. That was one of the things I was pretty disappointed they didn't do. Because we kind of talked about that. And the one, one thing I want everybody to understand about this is outside of that thing about the secretary getting taken out and some of the way they did drop boxes, a large portion of this bill they actually turned to our office and said, okay, what's going to make this work better for election administration? Um, and, we, and we put those in there for the most part. One of the things people have pushed back on, which is one of my favorite parts of the bill, is the absentee ballot request deadline. Most states have it 10 days out. We set it at 11 just because it's easier to set Friday at 5 o'clock close the business. Because what we discovered was two big advantages out of doing that. Now, the parties decided, like, we're shorting the time people can request a ballot. I'm like, yes, we are, because there's two good reasons for it. One, during November and January, if you requested a ballot more than 10 days out, 90% of those ballots got voted. If you requested it less than 10 days out only 52% got voted. So this is about protecting the franchise of those individuals who requested late and just waiting and waiting and waiting and don't get a plan, okay? Because by cutting it off then, they still have another week of early voting and election day. The other thing it does, it means that those elections officials and we have 159 counties in the state and they're all, you know, rich and poor. I mean, there's, there's, Fulton County, which spent like $40 million in the election, you have small little counties that their elections director works for 24 hours a week so the county can avoid paying the benefits. That's the different level of resourcing we have. So by having that cutoff date, that last week should be dedicated to just processing the stuff coming in and then working on logic and accuracy testing for your equipment because you have a big election coming up the next Tuesday and you want to make sure all your stuff is done properly. You want to give be able to focus your resources on that part of the election. So that's one of my favorite parts of the bill. Utterly boring but very important for both voters and for election administration. Um, what else would I have changed? I obviously would have kept uh, the secretary on as the state election board chairman. The other thing, I, I'm not a big fan of how they completely set this up for removal of the elections officials. What, I, what I've preferred to have done, it was what we had asked for, which is the ability to just fire these people who did a bad job. And what we mean a bad job is, you lose absentee ballot requests. You don't fulfill them. You don't process them. There's long lines. You don't put equipment out there well. Your logic, your test, testing goes badly. You don't follow transparency rules repeatedly, and then let the local county commissions hire somebody in the in the, in the place of that, and then we would st- review. On, then we would put an election board monitor in there with them side by side to make sure they were doing those things. As opposed to, we have one person there who's in charge and directly accountable to the SEB on that front. I think that taking the locals out of it all together means you don't. You're not going to get buy-in from the from the actual employees on the ground. And I just think that's just a bad administrative thing. So Victoria, i can probably get into the weeds of the details of some of this.
3: Well, I guess, I guess my, my question is a little bit at a different, uh, in addition to that, my question is, do you think there will ever come a time when your office and Stacey Abrams can talk and agree about something on election law?
0: She's incapable of agreeing with us. If she agrees with us, then she loses her ability to raise money. So no, I don't believe that. She, she is a partisan person looking to achieve a partisan end. She's done polling on this. She's built a system around this. She's raised hundreds of millions of dollars on it. She has no incentive to agree with us on anything. None. And the the idea of lionizing somebody because they are attempting to get to power is fine. The the Republicans do the same thing. They're trying to get in in charge because they want to put their values in place. Stacey's trying to get in charge because she wants to put her values in place. I don't mind any of that, but she is not in any kind of position to agree with us on stuff. She just isn't. And she couldn't. If we went and agreed to everything she said, she would call it a victory. You know, The, the whole signature match quote-unquote consent decree, which wasn't a consent decree. It was a settlement agreement. Did nothing. It changed nothing in the law. But Mark Elias runs around saying it was a great victory for them. It changed nothing in the law. We sent out an official election bulletin that changed nothing in the law at all. But in in trying to work with them, that's what we get. We get pummeled over the head with it. So, no, it's very difficult for partisans on either side right now to come in. I'll say this. Republicans came to us in a sense of much more openness, like, what's really going to work? And 95% of this bill is that.
1: I got to say, though, the optics of the signing of the law by Governor Kemp inside his office there, surrounded by all white legislators behind a painting of a plantation where slaves used to be held while a black lawmaker was banging on the door trying to get in and then gets arrested was not great and not a great way to encourage the Stacey Abrams of your state to cooperate with you. That signing had taken place early.
0: Okay. That had already happened. The governor was in the middle of his press conference explaining what he had done. Park Cannon and part of her crew, I know this is about two people sitting there walked up and said, is this it? Okay. She was very histrionic the first time she did it. The second video you saw was her calmly, after they said, ma'am, if you do this one more time, we're going to have to take you away. And then she knew exactly what she was doing. She did it to get on television because this is not the first time Park Cannon has done that. I mean, this is drama and, and melodrama and play acting on all sides on that. But you're right. The signing of the, where he signed it in front of with with six old white guys that looked like me was probably not the best thing. You're right. And she did it just as much for the cameras to get that and get those optics done. I was kind of annoyed that there weren't two state patrolmen standing there so she couldn't have actually reached the door and caused the problem.
1: All right. very last question very last question I want to come back to where I started which is the Fulton County investigation if you're um, if you're asked to you will testify before a grand jury about what the president was trying to do I don't think I have a choice in the matter. I don't know how this works really but I think but you don't really have a choice so- were you contact were you personally contacted by either by either the president or anybody else in his orbit about uh, changing your position on the on the election no I wasn't about that now thankfully no. Okay. Um, I, I was
0: talking to Trump campaign. And I would give him updates of like, okay, this is, this is the number of ballots out in this county. This is the number of ballots out in this county. And i would have done the same thing if the Biden campaign called. I mean, sure. I said basically the same things in public at, Listen, I was doing two press conferences a day, which is one of the other fun things when when the senators called for Secretary Raffensberger's resignation. They need to be more transparent. I'm like, literally, I, if I could went out my boxers, I could be more transparent. But that's about it because we, we were doing everything we could. We literally had the hand tally live streamed around the nation. So we were doing everything we could to try to make sure everybody, left, right, Republican, Democrat, black, white, rich, young, and uh, rich, young, old, poor. <laughs> it's going to get all mixed oh, you up. We got
1: it. All right. Gabriel Sterling. I want to thank you for joining us and uh, uh, being transparent about where you're coming from on the Georgia election law. And I would say we know you want to make elections
0: boring. But you're not boring, and we appreciate that. <laughs> on <laughs> I well, I mean, I, these were pugnations in there, and I felt like I got a little pugnacious with Victoria. So
3: it's okay. As it was Brennan Center can be triggering, I suppose.
0: <laughs> I don't believe in triggering, but I get to hear it a lot. So after a while, I will admit it gets kind of frustrating because I'm like, I've answered this 30 times already, but it's the first time for y'all. So, <laughs> but right. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, thank well, you. Good I, talk. Welcome yeah. anytime. Thanks a lot. Bye.